Okay, welcome back to the ATS Thoracic Oncology Podcast. Today, we're continuing our series of IP career uh, pathways. And today, we're going to talk to Ed Moon, who was previously an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the section of interventional pulmonary. And he's recently joined GlaxoSmithKline Welcome as the medical director of the Cell Gene Therapy Program. His research interests include CAR T cells in solid organs. And um, we're going to talk to him today about translational research and how it relates to interventional pulmonary. So, Ed, what attracted you to a career in interventional pulmonary and your research interests? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll take a step back and say that my interest in medicine sort of funneled down to pulmonary critical care because of the acuity in the ICU. However, when I was in fellowship, I was attracted to the procedural aspects of uh, the fellowship and uh, where I was being trained at the University of Pennsylvania, there was a subspecialty I was that had matured pretty far along in terms of procedural expertise in the section of interventional pulmonary, which I wasn't aware was a specialty prior to my choosing pulmonary critical care medicine as a fellowship training avenue. Um, so I was introduced to the world of interventional pulmonary during fellowship, rubbed shoulders with those who were already in that subspecialty, and then quickly realize that that was an additional level of training that I would uh, see myself fitting very well in. So that's how I got introduced, loved the field because it took my liking of procedural skills and procedural uh, therapies to the next level in terms of diving deep into what could be done in terms of pulmonary procedures. But as part of, you know, like, like any academic fellowship training, while I was at Penn, every fellow was required to find a academic pursuit, whether it be uh, biostatistics, translational medicine, or laboratory medicine. And, and I really didn't have an idea what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to train in procedures, but beyond that, in terms of academic endeavors, that was a requirement for every fellow. I literally had no, no clue. I didn't have any prior uh, significant research experience. I wasn't really attracted to clinical research or biostatistics training. So what I did was I approached the, the, the director of pulmonary research at that time, Stephen Albelda, who actually was is, is one of the rare pulmonologists who's dedicated his life into doing thoracic oncology research. And it was, a, it was a very fruitful conversation because he and prior director of interventional pulmonary at that time, Daniel Sturman, had already developed a very close, uh, fruitful, productive relationship in terms of research endeavors. So there was a constant back and forth between Daniel Sturman and Stephen Abelda in terms of ideas to test in the laboratory. And then once the laboratory experiments showed that the idea was a, a good one, it would then be translated into the patients, uh, usually delivered to patients via interventional pulmonary procedures, and then sampling done by Dan Sturman and his team would then translate back to the lab to see next iteration, how to further advance what the initial ideas were. So that's sort of how I got uh, plugged into interventional pulmonary and the, the world of research. So what was the, the, the breakdown of the timing of that? So you've got a three-year Palm Critical Care Fellowship and then IP Fellowship. So you're, you'd already formed your, your relationship with Dr. Albelda during the first three years. Is that correct? Yeah, so the fellowship period at that time was three and a half years. So it, you know, have you go from July until December, and I had formed the initial relationship through conversation with Stephen Abelda uh, during the latter half of that fellowship 
period. And I was in the lab, learned everything from the ground up. I had no prior research experience, as I said, and, and I actually didn't have any interest in cancer, um, either clinically or scientifically. But, you know, anywhere where you're doing interventional pulmonary, it's usually going to be housed in a pretty big cancer center. Um, so though I had no prior exposure or interest in cancer, I, through interventional pulmonary, I was introduced pretty quickly to cancer. And through the relationship between Stephen L. Bell and Daniel Sturman, I was introduced into cancer research. So in terms of timing, I had developed enough data in the latter half of my fellowship period to then pivot to a potential grant uh, mm -hmm. application and funding. And it was a little bit of, it required a little bit of flexibility because the the time to submit a KOA was at near the end of that three and a half years through you know, great mentoring by Stephen Valbelda and Daniel Sturman, the KOA received a fundable score on the first go around. But at that point, I had shown interest in doing an additional year of interventional pulmonary training. So there was some conversation with the NCI regarding the special circumstances and asking them, would I be eligible to postpone the actual funds being given to me so that I could do the one year of interventional pulmonary fellowship and then start the, um, the funding based research after that one year of fellowship. So it's sort of, a special scenario that's not really typical. And, you know, I'm appreciative to the NCI that they were understanding enough to postpone the funding for when I finished International Pulmonary uh, Fellowship. That's what other timing went. Okay. And then, all right. So that's interesting. So it actually was pretty fortuitous to some extent as well. Cause like, even if you didn't get the funding the first time around, you probably could have worked on it maybe that IP year to try to like reapply, but it worked out the first time. <laughs> so, yeah. That was always in the back pocket, although I was I was warned by everybody that even though it sounded possible that I'd be so knee deep in procedures that I'd probably not have time to to uh, revise the application to submit during my IP year. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, okay, so then post IP fellowship, you were at Penn for how, how many years? Approximately 10 years, a little 10 over years. 10 years, yeah. And then how was your balance of between the lab and clinical work? What's kind of percentage and how, how easy was it to balance one kind of maintaining your skills and two kind of being committed to the lab? Yeah. So the, the balance ended up being approximately 80% lab, 20% interventional pulmonary. And in terms of logistics, the 20% interventional pulmonary was really a half day per week of outpatient clinic and eight weeks out of the year, including weekend call, doing interventional pulmonary procedures. And then the 80% obviously was in the laboratory overseeing grant-funded research. Okay. And then the balance of that um, in terms of like being successful in the lab, et cetera, while you're also dealing with patient care or having to take weeks away from the lab, Yeah, uh, was that doable or you find it in reality in the end it was kind of productive or what was your experience? Yeah, it was, a, it was a challenge for sure, because uh, with the technology and interventional pulmonary constantly evolving, it was hard to stay abreast of every single new technology that was being introduced into the OR, uh, because there was such significant time spent away from the OR in, in the laboratory. In terms of uh, the procedures themselves, uh, I think it's a testament to the level of training 
that at least my institution uh, put me through because even with extended exp- extended periods of time away from patients in in a laboratory the next time I was on service that muscle memory that was built during fellowship never went away and I think you know as long as as long as the the year or two years where whatever training program you're going to as long as it's as difficult as it may be as long as it's a very fruitful year where you're repeatedly doing procedures over and over again I think it's very hard to lose that muscle memory now when you're having new technologies introduced during the during that type of career, you have to get trained in the new uh, procedures or new technology. You know, and, and, uh, especially if it's very software driven. So uh, there were times when you know uh, additional navigation software was being implemented in the OR when my career trajectory was already taken off, and there were some challenges in 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 becoming familiar with the new technology that was being introduced into the OR. But aside from that, honestly, I don't think it was it was that big of a, a hurdle. And I also, along with the more lab-based projects, I purposely came up with additional projects that married interventional pulmonary, the interventional pulmonary world and the T-cell immunotherapy world. One project, for instance, was using EBUS-guided bronchoscopy samples and subjecting them to flow cytometry in a lab to come up with a biomarker response for checkpoint blockade. So coming up with ideas like that, if you're in a career where there's a hybrid, where you're constantly having to use both lab space, lab techniques, and your IP techniques and skills, I think it helps helps the relationship and not be a difficult one to be had between the two uh, areas. I am... Justin, what percentage do you think would be doable in terms of like you had an 80 20 split? At what point do you think your your lab would have suffered if, in terms of percentage? Just for like advice for people out there who are thinking about maybe doing this kind of pathway? Yeah, so it, it, uh, it's a little bit driven by the response is driven a little bit by what type of research is being done, how good your team is, how much oversight your lab members need, but assuming the resources are there, assuming the team members in, in your lab are good problem solvers, can be pretty independent. I think you can get away from, you can get away with a 50-50 split, to be honest. I think any less than 50% of your time in the lab will be difficult to do. Um, you know, if, you're, if your research is, is sort of data mining and very data driven, where you're handed lots of numbers and you're, you're, you're plowing through numbers and coming with uh, results that way, I think it's a bit more doable. Now, if you have highly specialized cell culture engine and viral engineering techniques, I think it may be a bit more difficult because you need to train team members. You need to be present when they run into situations and not, they're not great independent uh, problem solvers. So it's a, it's a bit dependent on what type of projects you're in, but I'd say anywhere from a 50, 50 uh, and above thing. It's, it's very reasonable. Okay. I am. And then if someone is interested in kind of thoracic oncology research, it's not that common in my experience that like maybe pen is a little bit of a niche that people approach it from the pulmonary side of things. Most in my experience, it seems to be driven more from like oncology and, and more downstream. Is that true or is that your experience? That was definitely the the way things were back when I was training. But now, you know, a decade plus uh, forward in time, there's certainly other academic institutions where it's not hard to find an interventional pulmonologist or pulmonologist in general being involved in thoracic oncology research. You know, our, our prior, our, one of our prior fellows, pri- even before coming to join us to do interventional pulmonary training, just as a 
Polony fellow, he was involved in studying checkpoint inhibitors in thoracic ecology. So I think as long as as long as the the resources are there and the interest is there, there's nothing. There really should be nothing stopping a pulmonologist from getting involved in uh, lung cancer thoracic ecology research. I'm like, if you're not, as for instance, there is a wide breadth of programs out there. Um, people might have research interests in this kind of vein. Is there a way to collaborate with people like yourself or? other individuals who are not necessarily at your institution, or is that kind of difficult to do? So it depends on what at what point in one's career or training career that collaboration wants to be, you know, they want to establish that. Obviously, mm-hmm. I think having a collaboration like that while you're in interventional point of training is very difficult because of the, the demand that, that that year or two has on your schedule. I think if you're doing, if you're looking to do collaborations that don't require hands-on lab work. Collaborating is probably more easy to do. I've certainly had discussions, you know, through email in person over the phone with trainees at other institutions who wanted to go further with their research career by writing grant applications and, you know, providing insight and critique on their specific aims and how to formulate the story and the questions. I I didn't have anyone, I didn't have any collaboration where some, someone, uh, either a pulmonologist or an interventional pulmonary trainee from an outside institution visited to, to undergo training in my lab. I will say that in Steve Albelva's lab, there were collaborations where outside thoracic surgeons did visit for about a year to work on a project. So I don't see why if you can get someone and, and they were from overseas as well. So, I, you know, I, I don't I don't see why if we can get a thoracic surgeon from a different country to come visit the lab and to do to do a year's worth of research, why an interventional pony trainee who's just finished her training and taking a year off before a faculty appointment, why why it wouldn't be possible for them to do the same thing, especially if it's within the United States. So even though I don't have personal experience Having that type of collaboration, I think it's very doable. Okay, cool. So clearly you were at Penn for 10 years and recently you've moved to this position with GSK. What attracted you to move to this job? Yeah, so I will tell you that once you get into a specific area of research, industry will come across your name at some point. And, you know, this was one of uh, a handful of emails that came across my desk during my time at Penn. And each time it came across my desk, I either put in the junk mail folder or deleted it. But uh, there was something about uh, the way this email was was formulated and the vice president of cell and gene therapy specifically highlighted some of the reasons why I would find it a good fit. So I, so I uh, entertained the invitation and I said, you know, there'll be only two reasons if fulfilled or two criteria fulfilled what, uh, that I would entertain the position that they were, that they, they were uh, recruiting me for. One is um, it, it wouldn't require me to move. And two, it would be in an area of research that overlapped with what I was doing in a laboratory already. So after, you know, a CDA was established, I had a conversation with the VP and went through the research programs that I'd be in charge of. And it overlapped almost 100%, you know, in terms of Venn diagrams uh, with the research that I was doing. They were interested in doing uh, NYESO1-directed TCR T-cells and also CAR T-cells for solid tumors. I mean, this is basically what I was doing in a lab. I had I had spent you know, half of my time 
pretty much in the lab, Penn utilizing a model of T cells, engineer NYSO1 TCR. So it aligned perfectly. I felt that this was a way to reach a broader population of patients with my research efforts. Whereas sometimes in the academic setting, translating uh, an idea from the lab to patients may be a bit more difficult, especially in terms of the number of patients you reach. It was a difficult decision because I had spent, you know, a dedicated year developing skills in interventional pulmonary. And the option was uh, open for me to uh, once, once a week or once every two weeks to go to Penn to do procedures in the OR. But I felt that, you know, it was, it was, uh, it's one thing to, to, to do procedures to keep up with skills if you're doing a 70-20 split, but if you're going to do one day a week or one day every other week in the OR, I thought that would end up being a disservice to patients. So even though I realized I would miss that part of patient interaction, and I, and I do miss it, um, you know, it, it ultimately weighing the pros and cons, you know, I said yes to the recruitment efforts and I'm now being able to progress my research uh, endeavors in a different fashion uh, on a different platform. And um, how long have you been in the job now? September 2021 was when I shipped over. Okay, good, good. And what you feel like things are going well? Like, I know this is kind of a loaded question, but there's a lot of people out there who currently after the COVID pandemic are thinking of getting out of medicine. So how's it going? Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's going great. It's uh, quite a steep learning curve especially for someone who's sort of gone straight through medicine training to then go into industry for the first time. The titles are all different. The way the organization is structured is very different. The way meetings are held and the way things are approved, the way questions are asked and answered, it's very different. All new computer programs, all new websites, all new type of learning modules. But I, I feel like I've sort of overcome that hurdle and that steep learning curve. And now it's, it's, um, I get to do what I enjoy, which is to uh, develop the research, develop the T cell uh, assets. And it's very enjoyable. I have no regrets um, about the decision I made, you know, as time moves on family needs and family pressures change as well. So, you know, there's evolving health issues in, in, in my family, my, my parents that required a bit more stability in terms of lifestyle. And even though I had a 70 or 80, 20 split previous at Penn, you know, uh, there's still a lot more stability that I was able to have under my belt once I made the switch. And now I'm sort of able to be uh, more predictably available to help, you know, with my own family, with my parents. So, you know, I think life changes as we've seen with the COVID pandemic, obviously the needs and stresses and pressures change. So I think the decision came at a good time for me with my life state. And, you know, a lot of it's, a lot of it's video meetings, which yeah. I think was, was perfect in terms of when COVID hit because COVID was driving us all to have video relationships. So that part of that part of the job was easy to transition to having video meetings, but I do look forward to, you know, going back uh, in person and actually rubbing shoulders with uh, human beings. <laughs> okay. I am. Um, you, you mentioned that you learned a lot in the way that the industry works is different to academics and hospitals, but like, do you think there's stuff there that could have be translated back or like people could learn from 
industry better or that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the areas is, is ways to engage the FDA uh, when you're trying to run trials. I think I think because the processes and ways of working through INDs and and documents and planning a trial are much more uh, protocolized when it's in a large pharma. Um, I think you could translate those learnings back and attack them in medicine and make it a bit more efficient. Also, the, the way meetings are held, because we're much more tied down by start and end times of meetings, almost all the meetings start with, these are the questions we would like answered by the audience that we're presenting to. So I think even, even some of the ways uh, slide decks are made, I think there could be lessons learned for our academicians to be very clear about what's being asked, what opinions are being garnered uh, during a presentation. And, 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 and teamwork, I think collaboration, it, it stretches you because GSK, almost every meeting has American, European, and uh, Asian uh, attendees. Mm -hmm. So being able to successfully teamwork across countries on a, a unified project, I think it also stretches you in terms of your ability as a person to work in a teamwork setting. Yeah, that must be pretty hard with the time zones and geography and language barriers. Okay, well, what advice would you give yourself, your younger self, given where you've ended up or other people who are thinking of transitioning to like industry? Yeah, so I think the advice that I would give myself, my younger self, was is, is not to pigeonhole myself into a particular interest or a specialty, to keep myself as attractive to you know potential employers whether it be uh, in the healthcare setting or industry uh, to make myself as attractive as possible through unique skill sets and unique research background the only reason it's not the only reason but one of the main reasons why I was so attracted to the area of t-cell research at the time I was training is because uh, CD19 car therapy was uh, was hitting the news and was such a, a huge hit that, you know, every researcher and their mother wanted to get into T-cell research. But as we, as we involved ourselves more in trying to apply T-cells for solid tumors like lung cancer, we quickly realized that it was going to be a much different beast than it was for leukemias. Um, so there was a time when I, when a hard question was being asked, which was, is building a career for T-cell immunotherapy for solid cancer is the right thing? Is this ever going to work, right? Because if you devote yourself and that's the only thing you know how to do, and it ends up you know, down the line being a complete disaster and failure, right? Academic institution or industry bodies wouldn't be interested in that type of background because they've already, you know, they've already realized that it's not going to work. So, you know, during my research career, I was trying to get involved with T-cells, but also checkpoint blockade um, uh, to make myself attractive. So I think advice to my younger self would be to not, you know, obviously not spread yourself thin, but keep your interests a bit varied and keep your interests uh, as unique as possible. Do you think uh, you're going to overcome the issues for CAR T cells and, and make them the treatment of the future? Um, I think it's. I think we'll overcome it by combining it with checkpoint blockade and also delivering it uh, using procedures like those honed by interventional pulmonologists to deliver those therapies locally. Okay, interesting. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Moon. That was very enlightening and very helpful. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for the invite and your time, Mark.
And I, I really hope uh, folks benefit uh, and learn from these series that you put together.